Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 143. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you would be with us once again tonight uh, as we journey along through your words, through the uh, relevant studies. We ask that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what the Spirit is speaking to us. We know that your words are true. We know that they're reliable. We know that they can equip us for the work that you've called us to do in this time, during this age, during these difficult times that we live in, these these um, politically fueled times, these these um, racially confusing times, um, these uh, pandemic times. Lord, we ask that you will continue to protect us and uh, raise us up, strengthen us, and give us uh, hope uh, that you're continuing to work in and through us, um, help us to be witnesses of your great kingdom, of your um, great plan of salvation, which reaches out to every person, no matter what economic status, no matter what religious status, no matter what ethnic status, no matter what gender. Um, we know that your gospel message can cut through all of that and bring the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's what we need these days. We need a real, genuine healing and a, a peace and a, a a power that can can strengthen us and help us to to make it, but not just for that sake, Lord. We we seek to be your people, and so um, we want to build up your kingdom and praise your great name. Give us um, a, a time so that we can um, fellowship together tonight. Um, be with those who couldn't make it but wanted to make it. Bless those who are going to be watching the YouTube video afterwards, listening to the the MP3 audio files later on. Pray that you'll bless them where they're at. Uh, bless us, Lord, with your goodness, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Just want to say thank you once again to everyone who joins me week after week during these live internet studies via either YouTube or via the um, internet or uh, uh, iTunes or whatever MP3 audio, uh, audio podcast that you join me. And I'm in, my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, Kehilatunuma on Thornton, Colorado, and we are meeting in person. In fact, they, we took the little banner down off the off the website. It usually goes across, across the very top that talks about the COVID situation. So it looks like we're trying to return to a sense of normal, 
But we still have our um, uh, uh, YouTube streaming, so if you can make it in person, that would be great. But if you're outside of Colorado and you're not in the area, well, then go online to graftedin.com, which is our home website, and simply click on the recent sermons I can see on my screen right now and avail yourself of the... Um, YouTube videos that we upload there and record. So we'd, we'd love to have you either way, one way or the other. Uh, we're reaching out to you. I also have my own internet uh, web resources, my own website at um, tatesetor.com. You can find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. And as you can see on my screen right now, uh, right on the homepage, there are various links to various commentaries and resources that uh, uh, are there for your um, browsing. Just um, make yourself at home, click on a, on a commentary, read through the material, and then at the very bottom of each commentary, typically, you'll find my email address. So if you have any questions, you can let me know um, uh, what you thought about the material. That that would be great. Also, I've got a YouTube channel that I'd like to introduce to you if you've never heard of me. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetzator Ministries is where you can find me online. And um, I'm quite a busy person, uh, as I like to say. I'm uploading things. It says updated weekly, but I'm going to change that little graphic because really it it is practically daily if you click on the little videos tab and look on the uh, look at the little um see where it says when I upload things you can see that it's every just it's it's really every day that I'm uploading something to the internet so I'm delighted to bring this ministry to you just do these five things for me if you do visit my YouTube channel number one subscribe and bring yourself into a place where you're joining the family number two hit the little bell for notifications so that you can be uh, notified whenever I do upload new videos number three hit the um, thumbs up because I really think you're gonna like the content even though I'm a small channel I think you won't find the type of content that I'm putting out not quite like I do it and so I, I like to think that it's something that you'll find unique so I hope you like it hit the thumbs up uh, number four um, leave comments and questions and corrections and your thoughts when you watch a video let me know what you think let me know what you like to uh, see I don't respond right away it takes me a little bit of time just because I'm one guy running this channel and um, you know I've got to handle all the comments on my own so uh, that's the fourth thing and then number five Typically, when you're watching a video, there's a little um, there's a little arrow that points off to the right that allows you to share it with your media, share the media with, uh, with your social media families and things like that. That would really be cool if you shared my content with your friends and family members. Okay, alrighty. These are the live internet studies. Here's what we're looking at. Um, this is episode number 143. The meeting date for this recording is June 21st. 2021 on the USA date side of the house. This is um, Monday night, Monday evening studies. We meet every Monday night, at least until I decide to change the night. Uh, from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, no matter where you're at in the world, if you can set against the uh, Central Standard Time, you'll be good to go. The studies, the hour-long study is roughly broken up into two segments. The first segment is uh, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, we're in part 59 tonight. Continuing to work our way through the um, kind of excursus supplementary material from um, Tim Haig's Matthew commentary on the kingdom of God and how it's related to the way Paul would have interacted with Jews and Gentiles in his day when it, when it comes to this idea of the importance of 
of uh, Jews and Gentiles working together in the salvation plans of God and what that might look like using the um, topic of the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. I think we'll be able to finish that tonight, so uh, stick around for that. And then segment two is given over to the um, apologetic uh, Trinity study known as Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, Part 76. And we've just finished working our way through the chart that CARM has provided, and now we're ready to um, basically tonight start looking at kind of review of where we've gone. Uh, so I'm just going to go back all up to um, part uh, paper one, work my way through some review of paper one and paper two, and then uh, it'll probably be this week and maybe next week. And then we will be poised to turn to paper three, where we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. So hope you can stay tuned for that. Towards the end of the show, we'll watch a YouTube video like we normally do. This one's a little longer. Uh, it's from my short question, short answer live series that I put together a few years ago. And we're going to start working our way through those videos. Um, how did Jesus fulfill the meanings of the Jewish feast? We just come out of the fall, I'm sorry, the, the spring feast and the, the, the one that's right in the middle of the year, um, Pentecost, Shavuot. And uh, it's not, it's not, that wasn't too long ago that we were uh, thinking about that. So let's just talk a little bit about how did Yeshua fulfill these feasts uh, while he was here on earth and uh, how will he fulfill the fall feast? And we'll talk about that in that little video. Um, if you'd like to join us for the live studies, uh, some just brief details. We use Skype. You can see on my screen right now, there's a big blue Skype banner there. If you click that, it'll actually launch the Skype um, app in your browser. That's the easiest way to connect. There's no need to email me anymore and ask for the Skype link. That little banner there is the Skype link. So just click on that blue Skype link if you're on a desktop or a laptop computer, and everything should take care of itself from there. If not, you might need to um, download a Skype app or create a Skype account if you're on some other type of device, like a, um, a tablet or a smartphone or or something like that. But the, the Skype is free, um, and the 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 app is free and creating an, an account is free so why not go you know i don't work for skype or anything like that i don't get any type of kickbacks if i if you sign up for skype or something like that this is just trying to get you to help connect you to my live study and then lastly if you're on my website at tatesatora.com if you take a just a brief moment to scroll down to the very bottom of the page where it says donate you can see the little yellow donate button there around where all that hebrew writing is then um this is a great way for you to continue to reach out and bless me with your uh, financial support and your prayers of course are always needed but during these times where i'm still uh seeking employment out here in south korea this is a way for you to continue to help me and so um if uh, the lord is laying down your heart to bless me well then this is the way to this is the easiest way to do it and as i always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others all right let's turn to romans 14 unplugged feast and fast and food oh my we're working away through the commentary that i put together that is available on my website at tatesatora.com it's also available on graftedin.com in various places just a little difficult a uh, little different navigation in my opinions uh, it's not as straightforward um because that's not the nature of their website um but here at Tetsi Torah, which is my website, which is just all internet teaching, well then um, uh, it's a little easier to find the commentaries there. Um, we're working our way through basically the introduction concept, the introduction on, uh, idea, uh, background and historical audience, and we're um, 
we're going to finish up with Tim Hegg's uh, supplementary material, and then probably next week, I believe, we'll be poised to turn back to my own uh, Romans commentary here and connect the uh, final link to the conclusion section, and then we'll keep working our way down through the study. And I hope you've been able to follow along. I think we're in part eight tonight, if I'm correct, of Tim Hegg's um, uh, supplementary material. So uh, let's see. Okay, so this is the um, this is what we're going to be looking at. We looked at actually we looked at this last week. The uh, fourthly, um, where Tim Hague's talking about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, and um, on this is from his Matthew commentary, which is available for purchase at his website at Tate's Torah. I'm sorry, at the TorahResource.com, and um, uh, he's got some really really good material, and it's connecting this particular part right now is connecting directly to. Um, the idea that I'm trying to portray in my Romans commentary, which is the idea that when Paul wrote to the Roman believers, he wanted to reach out to them with the gospel of Messiah, but at the same time, he wanted to help them as Gentile Christians to make sure they understand their vital, important role in salvation history as pertains to the people of Israel. They are not separated from the people of Israel, so much so that there's two different people groups that Paul would have to write to the Jews and witness to them, and then he'd have to write to the Gentiles and minister to them. No, Paul can write to one body of Messiah with the idea that the body of Messiah is going to take this gospel message over to the synagogues and continue to witness to them and to try to win them to Christ and bring them into a place where they are genuine and lasting covenant members in God's kingdom. But in order to get there, Paul has to combat the growing idea, the growing notion, if we can gather any intentions from uh, his wording in chapters 9 through 11, this growing idea that the Gentile segment of God's body doesn't need the Jewish segment, right? That's the challenge, is even at that very early stage, the seeds of kind of replacement theology of supersessionism, the, the, the branch of dispensationalism that tries to write Israel out of the picture, that sentiment was already growing, even though Paul had never visited the congregation in Rome. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit knew the situation there and laid it on Paul's heart so that he could warn them, don't become arrogant against the branches that have been supporting you. You are being supported by the Jewish community, not necessarily spiritually, but uh, in other ways, um, in sometimes mysterious ways. How is it that God used um, the Jewish people to reach out to the Gentiles, right? How does that work? And now God's using the Gentile believers to reach back out to the disenfranchised and uh, um, backsliding uh, or um, stumbling Israel. But nevertheless, that's the salvation of God. That's the plans of God. And so that's where we're connecting this whole gospel of kingdom, a gospel of the kingdom, um, uh, kingdom of God, uh, that type of study here from Tim Hague. So we, were, we worked our way through uh, fourthly paragraph, um, last week and so now i think we're in part eight i believe it is part eight uh so let's just finish this up tonight tim haig talks and we're at the very top of page 92 if you have this commentary uh this is the matthew commentary i think it's in like three or four parts uh so we're in part one of his matthew commentary on page 94 at the very top tim says finally that the concept of a kingdom is at the heart of the gospel uh the gospel message helps us define the ultimate destination of our spiritual existence and journey. So we're talking about the kingdom of God 
as it impacts our understanding of not just the book of Romans, but the whole Bible, right? How do we as Gentile Christians understand Israel's role? Is she really written off? You know, just like in Paul's day, the majority of Jewish people aren't interested in Jesus. In fact, even more so today, do we have the hostility because we've got the rise of something known as um, uh, anti-missionary theology, a counter-missionary uh, theology, where uh, authorities within Jewish circles, like rabbis and teachers, have even gone on the offense to try to dismantle gospel um, uh, programs in their area. They seek to tear down, um, uh, you know, evangelism that might be targeting Jewish people, Jews for Jesus, Jews for Judaism. And so, um, Jews for Jesus is an evangelistic outfit, right? Christian Jews trying to reach out to unbelieving Jews. That's Jews for Jesus. But now, enter into the ring, Jews for Judaism, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say that we Jews don't need Jesus. We're fine with our understanding of God. You've got your Bible, which is New Testament. We've got our Bible, which is Tanakh. Notice I didn't say the word Old Testament. And so you've got your beliefs in Jesus and and God, and that's fine for you Gentiles, but um, we as Jews have always had a connection to Moses and to God and through the Torah and the people of Israel, and so don't bug us. Just leave us alone. And so we're going to go on the offense and, and just try to show you where you're wrong, how you're misusing our scriptures. Well, that wasn't really quite the way it was in Paul's day, but we did have stumbling Israel. We had Israel who had not yet embraced her Messiah, with Israel who had rejected Jesus and rejected Yeshua, and now was also rejecting the Gentile claims that they were genuine covenant members in the kingdom of God, and that their claim and their faith in Messiah brought them into a place where they were uh, genuine children of Abraham and had access to God's promises. And so um, uh, Paul had his work cut out for him. So that's what we're talking about. Tim describes things this way. We're not in the process of preparing for some ethereal existence in a celestial city, but we are rather anticipating the rule of Messiah in Jerusalem. He's speaking to the church, the church of today. Uh, Tim Higgs trying to get us to um, understand the heart of Paul when Paul wrote through his letters. Paul wouldn't have wanted the Gentile Christians to separate from the Jewish communities. Paul wouldn't have wanted the Gentile Christians to think of themselves as a brand new people group over separate separate and distinct from Israel. Yes, our faith in Messiah separates us and, and creates some difficult um, bridges that we need to cross, right, as we bring the gospel back over to a people group who originally had the scriptures and do have the scriptures of Israel. But at the same time, God has promised um, through the prophets that Paul made heavy use of in his letters, God has promised that one day Israel would be brought back to him in confession of their Messiah, Yeshua. And this brings them back into the program uh, directly front and center when it comes to um, um, salvation, when it comes to spirit and dwelling. Of course, we know there are prophecies that talk about that God's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh and that he's going to bring these promises to pass, the ones that he made with Israel's prophets long ago. God has not given up on Israel, and neither should you Gentile Christians, Paul would say. Let's continue with Tim Haig. Our focus upon living in accordance with God's Torah today is a fitting preparation for life in the physical presence of the reigning Messiah in Zion. Of course, the modern messianic movement 
is only modern in the sense that it is a resurgence of a return to Hebraically oriented lifestyle, a, um, a focus on bringing back God's people to a place where they can appreciate um, the whole counsel of God, starting with the five books of Moses and working our way to the end of the book. Um, for too long, historic Christianity has been kind of operating with a bit of deficiency when it comes to understanding and appreciating how the five books of Moses, how the legislation of the Torah fits into the people of God, particularly as Gentile Christians. It's no secret that most Gentile Christians, I'm not saying all, but I am saying most, most Gentile Christians are educated or brought up to believe that uh, the law of Moses is done away with, that the feasts are done away with, that the Sabbath has been relaxed and set aside and been replaced by a new worship day called Sunday, that circumcision, physical circumcision for males, is no longer necessary. It's even frowned upon. Uh, a kosher diet is no longer um, something that's sought after or something that you should concern yourself with. In a word, Paul has been... Um, recast as a Jew into a law-free Gentile himself, a Christian who left his Judaism, changed his name from Saul to Paul, and converted to a Christ, uh, started and converted to a new religion known as Christianity. Well, all of that creates helps to to feed into the the, the replacement theological bias. It helps to separate Jews from Gentile, Gentiles. It actually helps to erect a wall that Paul sought to bring down to demonstrate in Messiah how there's equality between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to access to God's words, God's ways, God's spirit, God's promises, God's blessings, uh, God's covenant uh, membership, and things like that. Jew and Gentile needn't be at each other's throats like they were in the first century, theologically, socio-religiously, and things like that. The, the Torah wasn't to be viewed as a Jewish-only document. Rather, uh, covenant membership was available to anyone who would surrender their lives into the hands of the Messiah of Israel, namely Yeshua HaMashiach. Omein? Omein. So let's pick up Tim Higgs' uh, commentary again. The kingdom of heaven, like we've been talking about for the, these last seven parts, we took a little break for um, Shavuot, but go back to, I think it's starting with part 53 um, uh, in the um, Romans studies. And that's where we started talking about the kingdom of heaven. Tim Hague says, The kingdom of heaven will find its ultimate expression in the physicality of a temple on a well-known piece of real estate called the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. This is a bit disturbing to many Christians to consider that the temple is a, a very possible reality one day, uh, especially given the theological bias against um, returning to anything that would seem to um, compete with the sacrifice of Messiah. I've got a whole commentary set on my website at TateSeTorah.com. Let me just show it to you real quick. If you go to TateSeTorah.com, like I mentioned earlier, and click on, um, click through the, let's see, where would I want to park you? Probably I would recommend starting in the Hebrews Unplugged um, commentary. If you click on that, it brings you to um, a study that I put together, which is on the book of Hebrews, select chapters, actually just thoughts on chapter 7 through 10. But in that 
uh, short study that I put together, which is also available as um, not only audio uh, portions like uh, MP3 files, but it's also available as uh, short little YouTube videos that you can see. Um, I had real fun putting that together, but the point I'm trying to highlight is that it will give you a, an appreciation for the um, sacrifice, the the fish, the effect, the efficacy of the once and for all sacrifice of Yeshua, and how that compares and contrasts with the animal sacrifices of old and what our um, mindset should be. I'm not saying I had all the answers there, but I think I've got a handle on the way um, the sacrifices played in to uh, Yeshua's once and for all sacrifice back in the day. And importantly, how a rebuilt temple could accommodate the sacrifices once again, for instance, in the millennium, and at the same time not compete with the once and for all sacrifice of Messiah. How would the two fit together? And how could you as a Christian actually not only anticipate the return of the animal sacrifices, but actually even participate and yet retain your faith in Messiah? How would that all work out? Yeah, that's how um, uh, that's where the uh, the uh, study goes. So I recommend my Hebrew uh, commentary. Just doing a plug for it there. Tim Hay continues realizing that the kingdom of God is the core element of the gospel. Dismisses the idea that the goal of our salvation is to escape from this world. You've heard that before. We just can't wait to get out of here, right? Let's just believe in Jesus so we can have this fire escape from hell and this fire escape from this world's troubles. And it's too popular, it's too easy today to have this kind of escapism mentality where we're thinking, you know, we don't really have to worry about today's. Um, social situations, you know, it doesn't matter if America's going to hell in a handbasket or, you know, whatever country I live in. Don't worry about all that. Don't worry about trying to reach the people for the gospel because, you know what, Jesus is going to sound the trumpet and one day we're out of here. We're going to meet him in the air and, you know, bada boom, bada bang, we're going to be in heaven and, hey, everything's going to be hunky-dory, you know, pie in the sky, by and by. Well, if that's all you're looking forward to, well, then shame on you. Shame on you if you're a Christian and all you are doing is kind of dismissing everything that's here in front of you with your eye, with a view towards what's coming. That's not why Yeshua left us here. That's not why he filled us with the Spirit. He gave us a commission, like we read about at the very end of Matthew. He gave us his power from on high. He equipped us. You know, it's like the old bumper sticker says, God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. Well, if you're a believer, if, you're a, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, then you are the called. And you have been called and equipped to preach the good news to those around you. You've been given a, um, an assignment. And so we're left here for a reason. Don't have an escapist mentality. Don't just think you can't wait to get out of here. Yes, it is a blessed hope that we look forward to someday. But in the meantime, take a look around you. Take a look at your immediate social circles, right? Who can you influence for God? Who can you share your good news with? Who can you share your your testimony with, right? Pray to the Holy Spirit that you would have divine appointments, opportunities to to witness to people. I can tell you right now, during this pandemic age that we live in, where everybody's just losing their minds, right? You know, we've got all the unemployment, we've got all the political pressure, we've got all the social unrest, all of the ethnic tension, the racial tension, um, you know, uh, you know, 
all this other stuff that's happening is particularly in America and other parts of the world. And then on top of that, you have a pandemic, right? A worldwide pandemic that is just killing people left and right. This it's, you know, everybody's in the pressure cooker, right? This is the crucible. The heat is on. And guess what? The world has nothing to fall back to. They have, you know, they've got their medications, their, their, their drugs, their alcohol, their porn, their, their illicit relationships, their, you know, their gambling, their, their, uh, everything else you can, you know, their idols, uh, they're going to turn to all of that. But in the end, none of that is going to sustain them spiritually or emotionally or, or, um, uh, mentally in the end, all of that's going to fail spiritually right? they're bankrupt. Who has the answers? Who has the true, the genuine um, uh, fulfillment that can that can cause a person to make it through? That can give a person hope beyond hope, a peace that surpasses all the under- understanding. Well, we do. We do. We believers. And so now is not the time to just have your mind looking to heaven and hoping that you're going to get out of this thing. Right? That's not the the, the proper way to approach this. We now more than ever have an opportunity to witness to people and to tell them about the good news that God in heaven loves them and that he has a plan for them despite what they're going through. And that through his Messiah, through his chosen Messiah, Yeshua, they can be brought to a place where the Holy Spirit can um, come into their hearts. Yeshua can come into their hearts and to fill them with that, that peace, with that assurance that despite their surroundings, despite their situation, despite their their um, losing their job or being uh, furloughed, or or um, despite the um, you know the, they, the the president they voted for didn't get put into office or whatever, you know, all of that is in God's hands. Put your trust in God's hands. That's why we need to have our minds on on Messiah, but at the same time, allow him to orchestrate and to con- conduct our lives in a way so that we can be witnesses for his great kingdom. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's continue. Rather, our purpose, like Tim says again, our purpose as citizens of the kingdom is to prepare ourselves for the future reign of our Messiah in this world. In this regard, our message is the same as that of Yohanan Hamat Biel, who's John the Baptist. And what is that? We need to be telling people what? Let's just look at it real quick. John uh, preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, Messiah is soon to return. No, we don't know exactly when he's going to return. But we do believe that it is very soon. And we hope and pray that it will be, right? The current state of affairs in the world today is just, it's just out of control. And you wonder, as a believer, how much further will God let it go? You know, how much worse can it get? Um... But as bad as it is, we still need to repent. Repent for the kingdom of he- heaven is at hand. God wants us to repent as a people. He doesn't just want to destroy us. You know, make no mistake, if he wanted to destroy us as a nation, I'm speaking of America specifically, if God wanted to wipe us out, don't you think he could have done so by now? Is not he, doesn't he have all power at his disposal? Is he not the God who spoke the universe into existence, he can simply snap his fingers, right? <laughs> Didn't mean to make a crude reference to God and Thanos there or something, right? Avengers, you know, end game, snap your fingers and something happens, Infinity Gauntlet and all that other stuff. That's not where I'm trying to go with that. But when I said snap your fingers, that's just the same reference that popped into my head. But you get the idea. God could just snap his fingers and things could change. But fortunately, 
fortunately, we don't serve that type of God who just who's just out to wipe everybody off the map, right? He, that's not the kind of God we serve. He wants repentance, and thus John's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel is the good news that if you repent, God will reconcile you to himself. Remember, we used to have a relationship with God in the garden as mankind, as humanity. God says, repent and soften your heart. Turn away from your wickedness, your evil. Repent and turn to me. You know, it's the old um, um, passage that we pray during the National Day of Prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and repent and turn from their wicked ways and seek heaven. Right? I'm kind of paraphrasing the verse. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and will heal their land. The idea is that we, as Christians, if we're living in sin, we need to repent of that sin and turn back to God. Right, turn from our wickedness. But even more so, John's message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand also reaches out to those who've never had a relationship with God in the first place. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think about it. Think about it. Repentance is something that God grants. You don't just have the power to turn from your wickedness and waltz into the kingdom of God. No. Your sin blinds you. You're in bondage. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, if you're not living for God, then you are in bondage. And repentance is a gift from God. How do you get that? You need to cry out to God to set you free. You need to cry out for Yeshua to break the chains in your life. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message of John the Baptist, Yohanan Hamatbil. This is the message of the prophets today. We need to turn from our sin. Uh, Tim Hay concludes tonight, but we send forth this message not only in word, but also in deed. We don't just need to stand on the corner and tell people, hey, guess what? You need to repent, and then pack up our, our soapbox and go home for the day and call it a day, right? It doesn't work that way. As Christians, Tim Hay reminds us, our business is to what? sanctify his name upon the earth to let everyone everywhere know who the king actually is and to admonish them to submit to his present reign and prepare for his future appearance as the enthroned king. The idea is, as believers, we affirm that the king is Messiah. There are no other kings, right? This is not the Game of Thrones when it comes to Yeshua. Right? They're not going to be people swapping out, sitting in that big chair. There's only one king sitting on the throne, and he will reign forever and ever. And there will be no Game of Thrones. There will, be, will be no swapping out of rulers here and there. Yeshua's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And it is present in our hearts right now. The kingdom is here. But remember, we've talked about this in the past. This is not a secret teaching. You can read about this as you read through your Bibles. The kingdom is also future. God promised his son a future kingdom that Messiah would sit on the throne of his father David, of his descendant. Uh, Yeshua is the descendant of David. And therefore David was also promised that he would never lack a man to sit on his throne. Well, how can that be if Yeshua, unless Yeshua eventually sits on the throne of his father David? We anticipate um, that one day, in the millennial kingdom, those of us who hold to a literal thousand-year kingdom, we anticipate that one day Yeshua will take his seat on the throne of David, his father, and that he will rule from where? 
from Jerusalem because that's the seat uh, of the kingdom. That's the uh, place that God promised to place his name in Zion. And uh, that's where David's uh, dynasty is going to uh, flow from. It's from uh, the Middle East there in Jerusalem. And so despite what it looks like over there right now, you read the news, right, all the nonsense, all the swapping out of, of prime ministers, right? Netanyahu's out, Naftali's in. Um, I think it's Naftali Bennett. I think that's his last name, right? Uh, so so uh, Netanyahu's out, Bennett's in. Um, uh, Bibi's out, uh, Naftali's in. Um, you know, uh, different policies are in place now, and you still have all the political uh, nonsense taking place, all of the uh, violence that takes place between Palestinians and Israelis, and and all the other pressure in the Middle East to to you know uh, uh, give up land and all of this other. Just you know, this has been going on for so long that that people in other countries look at the situation in the Middle East and think. You know, there's no hope for that part of the world. They're they're just going to be that way forever, right? There's 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 just really no reason to expect anything, any change. But I've got news for you. If you read through your Bible, if you read through the prophets, God has already had the final say, and that part of the world will change one day. God will have His way. His Son Messiah Yeshua will have His throne, and so we look with anticipation for the return of the King. Right? There's another pop reference to. I guess that's uh, that would be uh, 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 J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Return of the King. Right? Uh, the Hobbit series and things like that. The Return of the King. Yes, one day the King will return. His name is Yeshua, and he will take up his throne uh, in Jerusalem, and so his. Rain right now is in our hearts, but one day, Baruch Hashem, it will be physical. We'll be able to, to travel to Jerusalem and be able to meet with Yeshua and to have a discussion with him, right? I mean, what a blessed time that's going to be. Let's finish up with Tim Haig here with this last paragraph uh, that he has right here that you can see highlighted in um, yellow here. Uh, and that'll uh, do it for tonight's study on this part. Tim concludes by saying, while we bask in the blessings of our own citizenship, we as Christians, and in the benefits afforded us as subjects of the King of Kings, we nonetheless realize that as citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven, it is not ultimately about us. It is about Him. And let me just pause and just remind us that it's too popular by today's kind of Hollywood Christianity or kindergarten Christianity, whatever you want to label it, to focus on us, right? What has God done for me lately? What can God do for me, right? We read through the scriptures with this mindset of how can God bless me? How can I be more blessed? But that's kind of a self-serving approach to reading the Bible. If if all you're doing is mining through the scriptures uh, in hopes of finding passages where you can find out where God is just going to bless you and it's all about you, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but you, you've got a really immature view of the Bible. If, if that's all you're going to church for is so that you can see what's in it for you, if it's all you're doing is studying the Word so that you can find out how you can be more blessed and how you can um, get more money from God, right? How he can, if you, if you can tithe it more so that he can, um, uh, uh, you know, fill your pockets more. Um, you know, the whole kind of over uh, overused prosperity message that we find uh, in many churches today. Um, that's, that's really, it's, it's really sad that uh, that is a perspective that many people, many Christians or churchgoers, people who profess to be Christians, uh, it's really uh, a shame that that's the perspective and the message that's being taught. Shame on you pastors for, for teaching that message across your pulpits. 
It's not all about us. It's not all about us. It's about the king. The gospel is about the king, the king of kings. It's all about Yeshua. And unless we are living our lives with that perspective where we're, we're continually, consistently surrendering our will to his, into his hands, Lord, how can you be honored and exemplified in my lifestyle? Um, I think it's the late, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's that uh, preacher's name? I'll remember it here in a moment. He's, he's quoted as saying, um, is the life you're living for worth Christ dying for? Is the life you're living for worth Christ dying for? I can't remember his name, who, who, but he's a very, um, if you remember his name, leave it in the comments. Tell me who it was, if you guys know who the quote's from. But it's about Yeshua, people. It's all about Yeshua. Your life should be a reflection of his life in you. People, when they encounter you, they shouldn't really be focusing on you at least not all the time, eventually they should be led to Yeshua. My life should be a reflection of his life. And when people encounter me, ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not saying right away, you don't just meet strangers on the street and, and poke your finger in the face and say, hey, it's all about Jesus, right? Don't look at me. Don't look at me. That's You guys understand what I'm trying to say here. But in, at the end, at the end, the praise and glory goes to the only one who is worthy of the praise and glory, and his name is Yeshua. Tim Hague's final sentence says, it is therefore our primary desire that his name be magnified through our words and through our actions. Amen. Obeying. And that'll do it for uh, Matthew, uh, Tim Hague's Matthew supplementary material, uh, this part of uh, excursus that we've been going through on the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Next week, we'll be um, poised to jump right back into the um, Romans commentary proper, um, where we're going to be looking at, uh, we'll start looking at the um, conclusions right here, okay? So that'll do it for uh, exploring, I'm sorry, that'll do it for uh, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's take the last 20 or 30 minutes, maybe uh, maybe the full time, sometimes I go a little bit shorter, depends on what, what material I'm going to cover. Let's take the time now to go through um, this particular part of my commentary. Um, I wrote a commentary, obviously exploring the Shema, I wrote, um, let me see what I want to do here. I've got some notes, I'm trying to find where I put them. Bear with me here, I closed the screen that I wanted to be in, there we go, that's the screen I want to be at. All right. Um, I wrote uh, the the commentary exploring the Shema. It's parts one, two, and three. We have really, basically, let me just drop down to the bottom and show you what I'm talking about here. Um, why aren't you dropping down? There we go. Um, if you see down here at the bottom, we basically been working our way through this um, chart that Karn put together, where we had uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, and then we talked about all the different ways that. Father is called God, Son is called God, Holy Spirit is called God, Father is Creator, Son is Creator, Holy Spirit is Creator, etc., etc. And we actually last week finished with the idea that uh, God is a judge and His Son is a judge as well. And the Holy Spirit plays a part in judgment, but it's not really called a judge. There's a final um, statement down here at the bottom of the uh, screen. Let me just read that for you. Karm's concluding chart statement is appropriate to close out this paper two of my commentary. And what does Karm say? Quote, therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity is arrived at. Let me blow that up a little bit. I like that better. Um, 
Sorry about that. Let's try that one more time. We're right there. Uh, Karm says, uh, therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity, speaking about the, car, the, the chart that we would have just gone through, the doctrine of Trinity is arrived at by looking at the whole of Scripture, not a single verse. It is the doctrine that there's only one God, not three, and that the one God exists in three persons. And who are those persons? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is essentially the Trinity message in a nutshell. One God, three persons. Or as Dr. James White says, one what and three who's. And so Karm just wants to remind us, um, there are lots of analogies. They use the analogy of time. And they talk about how that time is in three parts as well. We've got time past, time present, and time future. When we're talking about time. But there are not three times, right? There's only one time, and yet there's three components to it. I've heard the analogy of water, right? It exists in a solid, it exists in a liquid, it exists in a steam. I've heard of the analogy of the egg, or we've got the white, the yolk, and the shell, or something like that. Um, of course, all of those analogies are going to have limitations when we're talking about the inexplainable nature of our um, triune God. But nevertheless, it all boils down to the end of the day, we're talking about one God. And so, as we look at this commentary, we're going to be um, turning to paper three, as you can see on my screen right now, exploring the Shema paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit. Um, and what does it say? We've got the big fat goose egg down there that says commentary forthcoming. Well, we're going to turn to that commentary, but not tonight. Instead, what I want to do for us, we'll probably turn to that maybe in two weeks. What I want to do is for us this week and next week is I want to go back up to the um, top of the commentary and work our way down through some of the material in a review fashion. We'll just take two weeks to do this. Certain parts of the commentary kind of jumped off the page more than others, and so um, some certain truths that I want you to remember. So let's just jump into some of those. Let's start out by looking at this quote from Kevin Connor that I had in my, at the beginning of my commentary in part one. He's the author of The Tabernacle of David, and um, Here's what uh, Mr. Connor had to say, um, quote, truth must be seen in all of its glorious facets as one related whole. We're talking about the idea of which comes first, truth or error. Well, I'm happy to say that truth precedes error. Truth comes first. So when we're talking about the truth of God and the truth of his word and the truths of, of the nature of God, we've got a lot of counterfeits out there. There's three gods. There's one God who wears three masks. There's um, one being whose name is Jesus who, and there, who sometimes acts like the Father and sometimes acts like the Holy Spirit. Or you know, um, There's all kinds of different descriptions, but in the end, if we take the Bible as a unified whole, then we, we can arrive at the um, conclusions that truth precedes error. Truth is first. One of the hardest things to maintain, uh, uh, this particular author says, in all of these various facets of truth, is that uh, God is bringing to the church is balance. Balance. So we're talking about um, people who study the New Testament exclusively and come to a conclusion that Jesus is God and that there are no other aspects of God that's worth studying. And then we've got people who are kind of stuck in Old Testament mode. Um, 
unfortunately, rabbinic Judaism is stuck in Old Testament mode. They don't really want to give the New Testament any type of um, consideration. And so their theology is out of balance. They've got a healthy view of God when it comes to monotheism, right? They're, they're very, very devoted to, to uh, championing the idea, the idea that there's one God. And in a world where there's so much pluralism, so much... Um, um, uh, universalism, so much humanism, so much uh, atheism, so much other uh, you know competing religions where we're talking about multiple gods and all this other nonsense. Um, the monotheistic approach of Judaism is refreshing um, change. However, they are out of balance. Um, Kevin Connor uh, notes it is a point worthy of recognition that heresy in its many forms originated in truth, right? Heresy is, a, is a, uh, an aberration of truth. In fact, uh, he goes on to say that it's impossible to have heresy apart from truth. There can never be the counterfeit, right? Think about money, without the genuine article first. You ever seen a counterfeit $1 bill? Well, how do you know it's counterfeit? Well, you study the genuine, you know what a real dollar bill looks like, you know all of its ins and outs, all of its details, and that way when you encounter a fake dollar bill, a fake, a counterfeit, you have this reference point to draw from. You know what to look for when it comes to what the genuine is. Therefore, when you find a fake, you can start picking apart all the um, discrepancies and say, ah, ah, wait a minute, it's missing this, or ah, wait a minute, there's an error here, right? This is not right. That's how you can tell the counterfeit. Well, it's the same thing in, um, I mean, it's not exactly that simplified, but there's a semblance of that when it comes to studying um, the truth of God's nature, we study the Bible in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation. We become familiar with what the truth of the scriptures teach us, and then from there we can launch into a study of the counterfeit. We can look at counterfeit um, examples of and descriptions of who and what God is, and we can um, identify them. Uh, Connor continues, the counterfeit is never the original. The original comes first. The imitation follows. So it is with truth and error. Truth existed before error. Error uses truth to launch out upon and build upon. So what is heresy? As I continue looking at this part of my commentary, heresy is simply an aspect of truth taken to an extreme and pushed out of proportion with the whole body of truth. So what I'm trying to challenge us with is that if you're studying the nature of God, and you're focusing only one, uh, on one aspect of God, right? His, his, his uh, nature as God the Father, and you're deficient in understanding how he, he's revealed himself in the person of the Son or of the Holy Spirit, well, then you're going to be out of balance when it comes to drawing some conclusions. You're going to come to the idea that <clears throat> God cannot be Jesus or Jesus cannot be God based on your imbalanced view of who God is to begin with. This whole idea creates what we call party spirit in those that respond to it. So you have people who um, basically rally around the idea that um, God is one thing or the other, but they're not actually taking the whole Bible, uh, the whole counsel of God into consideration. Connor continues, It is because truth is not seen as one related whole that this particular error happens. No one facet of truth can be used to contradict or distort another facet of truth, or otherwise heresy begins. Think about the heresy that crept up in the very early um, origins of the 
Gentile church in the early first centuries, the heresies surrounding the existence of God, the modalisms and the um, uh, the Arianisms and all of these other isms that sought to suppress the truth of the incarnation that uh, that Jesus, that Yeshua was God come to us in, in human flesh, that the Holy Spirit is very God himself, the identity, the identity of Yeshua as um, one uh, as total God and total man. Um, heresy uh, snuck in to try and um, make answers where incomplete research existed to begin with. Um, Connor continues, taking one facet of truth and majoring on it alone to the neglect or violation of other truths brings discord. Hence, the need for balance in every emphasis that is bring bought, uh, brought to the church today. Uh, Connor says that balance is harmony, and harmony is having all parts combined in an orderly and pleasing arrangement. So we're talking about uh, understanding God and appreciating his complex nature. How is it that um, God can express himself uh, to us and um, reveal himself to us uh, in his complexity? It blows our mind. It boggles, boggles our mind. It challenges us in so many ways. It stretches our understanding of reality when we contemplate the idea of the nature of God and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, we start with the foundational truth that there is only one God. If we branch away from that, if we move away from that, if we if we stray from that foundational aspect, that's when we're inviting heresy into the discussion. Nomain, let's read this next paragraph here, um, and then we'll probably um, begin to draw our study to a close. So, foundationally speaking, Actually, the historic Judaisms have it accurate when we're talking about the foundation. God is one, right? The Shema affirms this. There's only one God. The characters of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, confirm this. The Shema that we talk about is the watchword of Jewish monotheism. The Shema is foundation. This is why the study is called Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We'll look at the word Shema here in the verse that um, I've been using as the origin of my study. We'll look at that in a bit, uh, maybe tonight, maybe the next week. The word Shema itself, in case you didn't know, means hear or listen intently. It means listen up. It's actually a Hebrew imperative that carries the notion of an action-oriented command. In other words, as I say in my commentary, now that you have heard, go and do something about that which you've heard. That's what Shema uh, means. That's what it implies in the Bible. I go on to say these are my own comments. The Shema often introduces the discussions on the difficult concept of the triunity of our unexplainable God. I say unexplainable because were it not for the scriptures themselves, we would have no way of articulating the viewpoints that we arrive at. We launch from what the Bible gives us, even if it doesn't give us all of the wording that we would prefer it to have given us. I like to say sometimes it's it's uh, information limitation. We'll talk about that a little later on in this review as well. But the point is, the scriptures are not only our starting point when it comes to understanding God, but they are the final conclusion when it comes to understanding God as well.
The ancients of Judaism called Hashem Ein Sof. I think this is an Aramaic term, but it means, or it refers to, uh, quite literally means without borders. So when we're talking about God and his attributes and understanding his nature, right? We're having an, what we call an ontological discussion. At the end of the day, in human terms, we cannot capture all of the wording to describe God. He is indescribable. He's ultimately unknowable were it not for his own self-revelation to us. If God didn't bring his revelation to us, then we would be left without this understanding. We would be in a place where we're simply inadequate. We cannot reach out to God. He has to bridge the gap for us. But even in the revelation that God has given to us, we begin to realize that this God that we serve cannot be put into a little box. He cannot be contained within the four walls or the six walls, if we put them in a cube, right? We can't bring him into our little lab and conduct our little science experiment on him with hopes that we would completely be able to catalog and categorize him and 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 um, um, put him in an encyclopedia so that we can uh, describe him in all of his parts. It just doesn't work that way. He is without borders. He is the Ain So. Our God is infinitely unknowable, and yet, don't get me wrong, because of our finite minds, he has chosen to express himself in ways that we can perceive, and I might add, that we can relate to him. He cannot be um, fully explained by our own finite minds, but in his mercy and grace, he reveals himself to us so that we can have a relationship with him. He is not unrelatable. He's not impersonal. He is a God that can be reached. He can be touched. He can be communicated with. He can. We can have a relationship with him. So um, there are a good number of Jewish mystics or um, Jewish authorities who might say otherwise. God is unreachable. He's unexplainable. He's... Um, uh, unknowable. Ultimately, you can't uh, have a connection with God because of his nature and your nature. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Through the person and work of the Son of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we absolutely can have a relationship with God. He is not unknowable. Let's continue. However, we shall have to wait to gain a fuller perception of him when once we put off this corruptible flesh that we live in and our eyes are able to see through this mirror clearly instead of darkly. So we live with a deficiency. Yes, we live in a place where we are reliant upon the words of God and the spirit of God to reveal God to us. Were it not for God bridging the gap, we would be in a place where we would be completely blinded. Let me look at the verse that's um, that study is named after real quick. It's right here in the Hebrew on my screen. It says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohino Adonai Echad. And then I transliterated it for you right there, for those of you who can't read the Hebrew. It's the exact same thing I just read. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohino Adonai Echad. The translation is, Hear, O Israel, Adonai our God, Adonai, is one. Some translations render uh, this last uh, two words, Adonai Echad, as uh, Adonai is the only one, or Adonai the one and only, or Adonai the Lord alone, or something that effect. Uh, trying to um, convey the idea that there is only one God for Israel. And yes, 
as I mentioned, that is the correct starting place. So as much of a difference as I might have with rabbinic Judaism's views on God when it comes to ontology and uh, things like that, right? Their rejection of Jesus as um, uh, uh, son of God and son of man. Yes, we have our differences there, but when it comes to affirming that there's only one true God, I absolutely stand on the side of Judaism and on the stand on the side of rabbinic Judaism. To, to, to the degree that they affirm the one God of the Bible, I'm not talking about the God of their minds, the God of their creation, the God of the, the mystic Sephirot and uh, you know all of the, the, the Kabbalah and all that other mystical nonsense where they've got the emanations of God and all these different circles and the third eye. and, and I mean, it's, it's, it's new age through and through. Kabbalah and all that other New Age nonsense, mysticism. I'm not talking about that type of God. I'm talking about the God of the Tanakh that you would encounter as you study and read through the Tanakh. That God, the God of ancient Judaism, the God of historic Judaism, that particular God is the same God that I serve. I go on to say my commentary. Uh, anyone with some knowledge of the Hebrew text that I just read earlier will realize that the word translated Adonai above is the four-letter name for Hashem, Y-H-V-H, right? The Tetragrammaton name, also known as the Tetragrammaton, right? The four-letter name of God. I, I pronounce it as Hashem at times. I say Adonai. I say Yahweh. Um, uh, things like that. Just uh, different circumlocutions from time to time. We can say Lord. We can say God. Um, the Jewish people use this name only in a very sacred and personal way. Uh, to be sure today, Torah-observant Jews, particularly like uh, uh, rabbinic Jews and such, in reverential fear of misuse, they never speak this particular name because of the understanding that the Shema, quote-unquote, defines the oneness of Adonai, which is what the Hebrew word Echad implies right here, right about Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Lord is Echad. Many Jews are fiercely monotheistic based on this particular verse. The Lord is one. There is only one God for you, Israel. He alone is the one you shall serve. After all, as I say in my commentary, is this not what the plain sense, the Peshat, of the verse in Deuteronomy is actually teaching? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Let's conclude by reading this commentary, uh, this paragraph right here, and then we'll close our commentary. The word Echad teaches us that God is the only God that we are to serve. That's why I said that in our, our um, study of Shema, and when we're looking at the nature of God, we start with the truth that there is only one God and that He is the only God that there is. He is the Lord alone. He is the only God that we are to serve. To be sure, as I mentioned earlier, some translations render this verse as, quote, Here, Israel... The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Many um, Jewish translations render it that way. This is the primary meaning conveyed by the use of this word echad, no matter what other, um, uh, say, midrashic or homiletic um, uh, types of um, ways we could spin this word echad, primarily if we just work from the basic foundational understanding of what Moshe is conveying, he is telling Israel, Listen up. There's only one God, and he is the only one you should serve. And this, of course, would be in contradistinction to the pantheon of gods that Israel left when they came out of Egypt. Egypt had many gods. 
Egypt had some major gods. You know, we had Ra and things like that. I don't know all the names of the gods in Egypt, but you can study ancient Egyptian um, uh, religions and come to find that they worshipped uh, many different expressions of gods, right? The Nile River was considered a type of god. Uh, the Pharaoh was considered a type of god and things like that. But when God brought Israel out, the, the children of Israel out of Egypt rescued them from that bondage and brought them to the foot of Sinai, gave them the words of Torah. He sought to reform their understanding, to change their perspective on who and what God is. He introduced himself to them all over again. I am the God of your forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the one true God. Contrary to what you've heard in Egypt, I am the only God there is. There are no other gods. Everything else is a false God, is a God of man's creating, or, at worst, is a demonic entity. There are no other true gods. I am the only God you shall worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Right? That God is our only God is paramount to correctly understanding any revelation of him in his word. Omain, Omain. And that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy real quick and look at two passages. The first passage is Jeremiah 31. 34. We read the first three verses in this section earlier, 31, 32, and 33. And now let's read the final verse in this particular uh, passage that we've been highlighting. Jeremiah 31, 34. Speaking of this new covenant, this Brit Hadashah that God is going to one day make with Israel, but is already available to anyone who names the name of the Lord, particularly names the name of Yeshua as Lord. Jeremiah promises to corporate Israel, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. These are corporate promises that will one day come to pass as Israel surrenders herself into the lordship of messiah yeshua as a people this is still future facing it hasn't happened yet and remember from our roman study paul wants gentile christians in rome gentile brothers to continue to reach out to stumbling backsliding israel to to unbelieving israel national stumbling israel with these particular promises these promises are for israel and they need to hear these verses so continue to reach out to them what does the hebrew say on the right side of the page the hebrew says Eslak la anum, I'm sorry, la a la ano la anovam la avonam. Keep stumbling over that one. La avonam ul hatatam lo ezkarud. And that'll do it for the liturgy from the Hebrew section. Let's turn quickly to Galatians chapter 3 and keep reading our section from Galatians that we've been looking at. Um, We'll probably finish with verse 14 next week, but this week it's Galatians. You know what? I think I'll read both of them. No, I won't read both of them. I'll just I'll stop at verse 13. Next week we'll read the whole section 10 through uh, 14. Uh, but verse 13 says, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Over on the uh, right side of the page, Paul writes in Greek, Christos humas exegorosen ectes kataras tu namu gignamenas huper hemon katara hati gigraptai epikataratas pas hokrenamenas epi ktsulu. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the uh, short little video for tonight. Uh, we'll watch the video, and after the video is over, we'll simply dismiss this prayer. Okay, you ready? Here we go. The Feast of the Lord, and it's important to recognize that they're His feasts, not the Jewish feasts. They're dress rehearsals of Messianic redemption. How did Jesus fulfill the meanings of the Jewish feasts? Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Short Questions, Short Answers, a Shomer Mitzvot mini-series. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Historically, the nation of Israel was to act as a repository of the wisdom and word of Hashem, that is, God. With his called-out ones acting as a fishbowl, the surrounding nations were to learn about the Creator, the one true God of the universe, from the everyday activities of the offspring of Avraham, Abraham. This, in my answer, is one of the primary reasons that the Torah, the law, was graciously given to Israel in the first place. In both biblical and modern Hebrew, the word for appointment that we read about in our liturgy um, is moed. And we heard that in the liturgy, moed, moedim. Right? These are the Moedim of the Lord. These are the appointments of the Lord. And this is translated as designated times in David Stern's Jewish New Testament or, or complete Jewish Bible version of the Bible, his translation that many of you have. Many Messianics like that particular translation, designated times. Interestingly, the root of the related word for Moed, kind of a sister word, is Mikra. And it's translated as convocations by David H. Stern in the same Bible. The root word of the the root of mikra is the word kara, and this word conveys a sense of rehearsal. I like to think of that in this way. Hashem, that is God, masterfully designed the mikra e kodesh, the holy convocations, to act as sort of dress rehearsals for his children. Now, naturally, you should ask yourself, of what? The feasts of the Lord, and it's important to recognize that they're his feasts, not the Jewish feasts, they're dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. Our Lord Yeshua Jesus has literally and prophetically fulfilled the first four of the seven feasts that we read about in Leviticus 23. We didn't read the entire chapter there, but I encourage you to go back and read that on your own. It's my belief that the Torah teaches that he will likewise literally and prophetically fulfill the final three at his soon-to-be second arrival. As the children of Abraham willingly and faithfully lived out Hashem's yearly cycle of Moedim, of festivals, of, of um, calendar dates, the Spirit of the Holy One graciously opened their hearts to understand that as his treasured possession, they were responsible to actively pursue a genuine, personal, loving relationship that Hashem has always desired from the nation of Israel and through the grace poured out to Israel 
the surrounding Gentile nations might also see the goodness and the mercy of Adonai and seek to become one of his treasured possessions as well. Today, our covenant responsibilities to our holy God have not changed any more than the covenants made with his treasured people have changed, right? Our God is an unchanging God, and his covenants don't change, and he doesn't change. Therefore, because his covenants don't change, his promises don't change, then our responsibility to these covenants doesn't change either. He is our God and we are his people. He hasn't changed his mind about who he is. He hasn't changed his mind about who we are. Therefore, we shouldn't change our minds about who he is, and we shouldn't change our minds about what his word says. All right? History has demonstrated, we're right here, uh, for those of you who are following along with my YouTube channel right now, history has demonstrated that in the fullness of Hashem's timetable, he sent his only begotten son Yeshua into the world to redeem fallen man. This is the messianic redemptive history that the festivals portray. Okay, um, Yeshua came into the world to redeem fallen man and to make it possible to have a right relationship with our heavenly Abba. This messianic redemption of ours, which was accomplished through the sacrificial death, the burial, the miraculous resurrection of Yeshua, our Savior, has been prophetically and historically displayed through the teachings of the Holy Convocations of Le Leviticus 23. There it is for us. The festivals demonstrate how God will, will draw people unto himself and save them. The festivals are signposts. The festivals are the most accurate and complete description of the messianic redemption that we have next to the Gospels themselves. Before the Gospels were presented for us, written down for us today, um, what Israel had for them was the witness of the scriptures. It is therefore Hashem's desire, I go on to say in my answer, that these teachings, right, the scriptures, the whole Bible, particularly the Old Testament that Israel had before there was what we now call the New Testament, these teachings were to become an integral part of their everyday life, and they are to become an integral, integral part of our everyday lives as well. And the way we make these a part of our lives is as we walk out the truths of our new identification in Messiah. Does that make sense? The Bible was meant to be lived out. It's a, it's, a, it's a description of the blueprint of our everyday living. And this includes the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. To be sure, I say in my writings, the Torah has demonstrated, and here's our quote from the book of Luke again, quote, Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Tanakh, that is to say the Old Testament, so they could understand the scriptures. That's Luke 24, 45, as rendered out of David Stern's complete Jewish Bible. The time has now come for all of God's children, both Jew and Gentile, to begin to have, in my opinion, a unified voice when it comes to the Torah. Now we're going to get a little bit apologetic. The, the historic Christian position has been that uh, we're Gentiles, we're Christians, we no longer have to walk out these particular festivals on an everyday basis. Those were for the Jews. They were given to Israel. They were for a different dispensation, a different era. Uh, we now live in the dispensation of grace. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We walk by the law of Christ, um, something like that. 
for too long the olive tree has been divided the Jew and Gentile in the in the uh, remnant of Israel uh, and greater Israel as well we've been divided over this issue of quote who should follow the Torah and why whose law is it who has the responsibility I think that this is uh, an authoritative answer that we as Messianics can kind of run with. The Torah actually details the lifestyle of a genuine follower of Hashem as correctly interpreted, that is to say fulfilled, by Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. When in doubt, look to the rabbi. If you have a question about what the Torah says or how it should be implemented, look to the rabbi, capital R. You don't always have to go to Rashi or Ramban or turn to turn to rabbinic Judaism today if you want to understand the Torah. Just turn to your New Testament, and that'll help you understand your Old Testament. Okay? If you want to understand the Old, then turn to the New. If you want to understand the New, then turn to the Old. They work hand in hand. And in fact, take that little page that's in the middle of your Old and New and rip that thing out. That doesn't belong there anyway. It's one unified teaching in one unified body of instruction to God's people. Omain? Omain. Let's keep reading my answer here. I say that this means that all genuine believers, right, both Jew and Gentile, have been given, watch this, a divine covenant responsibility. I didn't mention invitation there. I think we've been given a divine covenant responsibility, as it were, to follow as much of God's word, that is what some people call the Older Testament and, and the Newer Testament, the Older, the Elder Testament, I heard one pastor call it the Elder Testament. Uh, the Older Testament, I don't like that word Old Testament at all, so that's why I put the word older in there in, in quotes. But we're, we really should have the responsibility to follow as much of God's word as, as we can press into, uh, as much as we can take on, as much as, as we can and seek to understand. Um, don't overload yourself, right? Don't stress yourself out trying to, to walk into the 613 all at once, right? All the Torah can't be done in one day. But as much as you can press into, I go on to say that this should be empowered by not the flesh, but, of course, it should be empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Ruch HaKodesh. He is the one who empowers us to walk into the Torah, to walk into the festivals that we're reading about in Leviticus chapter 23, etc., etc. So in closing, in closing, as we looked at this question of how did Jesus fulfill the meanings of the Jewish festivals, uh, my last paragraph says it this way. Ultimately, it is my wish as a Torah teacher, as a Jewish believer in Jesus, uh, it's my wish to invite both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah to press into the covenant responsibilities and expectations of Hashem's divine mandate. I use that phrase again. I'm emphasizing this. Hashem's divine mandate to participate each year in His feasts. How did Jesus fulfill them? He walked into the historic reality of what the festivals were describing and what they were anticipating when the Torah was given way back in the times of Moshe. And with that, let's draw our commentary to a close. Uh, I encourage you to uh, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel here. I think it should be showing up on the screen there. And subscribe to my YouTube channel. That way you can uh, uh, pick up the other studies and follow along. If you're f uh, listening to this audio podcast by way of iTunes, uh, I also encourage you to subscribe to my iTunes podcast. And that way you won't miss any of the studies as they're, as they're brought to you. Okay?
All right, and that'll do it for the short little video. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I'm so blessed to be a part of a worldwide effort to um, continue to uh, build up your kingdom, to magnify your name, to glorify you, and to praise you, even if it's only at this uh, level where it's me and a few other people who are joining me in the live studies. Nevertheless, I use the phrase worldwide because I'm in one part of the world and most of the people that I'm reaching out to are on another part of the world. But I pray, Lord, that this particular uh, commentary, these teachings, this website, this YouTube videos, these um, podcasts, that they would go out and reach the people that you intend them to reach. If it's 10 people, that's great. If it's 100 people, that's even better, at least in my mind. If it's 1,000 or 100,000, wow. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to uh, play this small part. Continue to protect us and raise us up and to um, give us a uh, opportunity and voice to witness and to share the good news with people around us. Um, help us to have a heart for the lost and to continue to... Um, seek to share our testimony. Um, thank you for uh, the lives that are changed as a result of the ministries that we're able to interact with. Uh, you are the one who receives the glory and all the praise, and we'll be careful, Lord, to give you that glory and that praise. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.